Welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill. And I'm Lucy Siegel. Pandas, tropical jungles, coral reefs. These are all pretty sexy, nice things that it's not hard to care about. We're not talking about them this week. This week, we're talking about difficult, dirty, horrible, scary stuff that people don't care about, but that it's really important to care about. And the people we've got lined up for you this week are masters of the art of making you care about shit. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So this week's episode has a Cornish theme because we were in Falmouth at Falmouth University. We spoke to our two guests, uh, Hugo Tagholm and Tim Cockrell, uh, before lockdown. So we were actually with them, which was joyous. And it sounds retrospectively like we were having a party, which in a way we were. (laughs) We were. It was so nice. I mean, these are both like Lucy already knows Hugo really well and I, as you will hear. Uh, already know Tim um so these were both people who we wanted to get on the show from its conception because well we'll leave them to explain I I just want to say a fun fact about Hugo Tagholm's name Tagholm is from some Nordic derived source and it means whale killer what yeah how could we how could we (laughs) How could you let a whale killer into our podcast? Well, it's just, it's not really ironic, is it? It is, is ironic. It, irony? it is irony. It is. I thought, oh my God, stop. I'm using it in the Alanis Morissette sense of listing things that are not ironic. But in the non-ironic sense. Yeah, in the non-ironic sense. Um, yeah, I mean, this man is all about the is ocean it? and preserving ocean creatures. And yet, yet he is a literal whale killer. I hope he doesn't mind us introducing that fun fact about the name tag home and tim cockerel is not a real cockerel he is well he is his surname is but like hugo the well killer he is not also a cockerel do you know what i like about this point differently too. yes this point in the show uh tim is very much an enigma now what i can tell you listeners is by the end he won't be so much of an enigma you're gonna know stuff about tim yes I'll we leave should, it there. Well, we should leave it there. Can you tell that we're on the home straight for the series, listeners? <laughs> and that the edges, the wheels on the bus are starting to come off. Uh, they were only gently glued on. That's true. Also, this is, you know, we've had some pretty intense and full-on and upsetting episodes. This isn't one. If you're on a gentle car journey, uh, maybe not with your gran. I don't know. If you just basically, it's not going to be heavy. Like it's, That's like a non a non-trigger warning is oh actually wait with the tim bit maybe there some people will be i think some people will be heavily distressed by the okay. cockerel <laughs> intervention as we're calling it at this point do try okay. and stay with it right yes uh um, just a little a ooh. little note from natalie our producer uh around the name uh tim cockerel there are several possible origins for this unusual surname variants of which are cockerel 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 and cockerel and then there's some stuff about 7th century. Wait, no, but that's the interesting bit. Oh, that's the, the good bit. <laughs> is a patronymic or diminutive of the Old English pre-7th century personal name Cock or Cocker. So it's like, if it's the diminutive, that's like Little Cocker. Or if it's the patronymic, that's Son of Cocker. Okay. So Tim, Son of Cocker or, or Little, little cock, cock will... Oh, <laughs> oh God, you can't say that. <laughs> Tim... Jeez. Tim's going to hate this episode so much for several different reasons. And you just but added dis- another one. Yeah. But despite all of the of the uh, mean things we've just said about Tim, you are going to love him. I love him. Uh, Lucy loves him. I do. Uh, yeah. So welcome back and enjoy the show. Shall I do it? You can do it. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> we always start like this. Shall I do it? No, you do it. Okay. We are in the bowels of Falmouth University's editing suites it's very very impressive bowels i've got to say yeah really lovely bowels. bowels lots of 
nice equipment. And thank you, Hugo Tagholm, CEO of Surfers Against Sewage, SAS, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking to you today. Falmouth is um, an unknown country for you because you're in St Agnes. Yeah, we're up on, on, on the north north coast, but Falmouth um, and the university are incredible sort of places. Um, and I do sometimes venture down for a surf in the wintertime in this sort of neck of the woods. So, um, so yeah, and what a great institution for, uh, for marine conservation and creativity. So. Well, why don't you just uh, introduce what Surface Against Sewage is? Because like, whenever I've mentioned it to people, they just think it's about surfers and sewage, but it's not, right? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it used to be. So um, the, 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 the name is a, a vestige of where it started 30 years ago. This year is our 30th anniversary. Um, and it, um, the name is, is what it did. It was a, a group of surfers who rose up uh, against a then sort of chronic sewage issue of the time. Um, and it stuck with us, um, although we've evolved massively as an organization. Um, and I sometimes liken the sort of name to the car phone warehouse. Um, you don't really want a car phone anymore. Um, you probably don't want to shop in a warehouse, um, but they are a market sort of leader. They've reinvented their offer. And that's sort of what we've done in the, the marine conservation sort of sector. So we work on particularly plastic pollution, um, on climate change, on marine protection, and still on sewage. There is still a big sewage issue in some parts of the country. So talk about your... Um a journey with Service Against Sewage? So you were a supporter originally. Yeah, I, I got involved in, in 1991, the sort of the year after it was formed. Um, I thought myself a, as a pretty good sort of surfer and I took part in a competition up in North Cornwall um, called Surf to Save that supported um, Surface Against Sewage, uh, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. Um, and it's there that I first met some of the founding sort of members um, and took a real interest it was the combination of my two great passions really uh, the environment and the ocean and and sports um, and so it's sort of the perfect thing for me I went off and then did my career and supported in various ways um, as a fundraiser as a campaigner and then this great opportunity came up in 2008 to uh, to to take the helm um, and sort of reinvent it somewhat um, it had hit some rocky times and I'm very proud at the journey we've been on subsequently so just tell me a little bit about what it was like when you arrived in 2008. Well, look, it was this incredible organisation that had been really focused on water quality over the, the sort of the, the 90s um, and early 2000s um, and, had, uh, uh, and had this sort of perfect storm of uh, an issue that was uh, a zeitgeist issue in the public's mind. They were seeing the, the impacts of sewage pollution around the coastline, particularly surfers and swimmers and people who used the ocean. Um, and it was a time that, that new legislation was coming in from Europe, the sort of bathing water directive, the urban wastewater treatment directive and then that was coupled with these radical campaigners with their surfboards their gas masks their slogans and their inflatable turds taking to the streets of london and manchester and newcastle and cornwall to protest against the status quo uh, to protest against the behavior of water companies and big industry and to really press on the legislation that was going through in 1990 and 1991 after the privatization of the water companies to to get them to clean up their act and you know, back then, only about 25% of our beaches would have met the minimum standards. And today, because of really good legislation and some great campaigning and great sort of impact um, sort of publicity, uh, we now see about 100% of our beaches really passing the, you know, the, the bathing right. water standards. I mean, there is it masks some big problems still, hmm. but um, it's a great success story for powerful legislation and some personality campaigning. So you arrived and there's like a cupboard full of inflatable turds and I know you used to carry around like a a loo essentially and a big cotton bud and stuff like that. So it was all very, from a communications point of view, it was very much stunt driven. What? How did you change it? And what was the first campaign that you did that you brought? Well, look, it was, I think um, there, there was, there was a, a cupboard full of props. The, the organisation had hit a rocky time and didn't quite know exactly how it wanted to articulate itself and, and move into new areas back in back in the sort of mid 2000s. Um, so I inherited a, a slightly confused organization. It was in a sort of a bad way. Um, and I just had a, you know, three members of staff um, and we weren't 
you know, people weren't really sure of where to take it. I think there was too much retrospective um, on what happened in the 90s, looking back at the water quality sort of campaigns and the inflatable turd. And by that stage, the turd had sort of deflated a little bit. It was less less attractive to less the media. Buoyant. It was less buoyant. And the issue had sort of changed. So it wasn't the zeitgeist anymore. And it was moving away from that. People were having a predominantly clean and good time in, in, in the water on our beaches. Um, and so the organization needed to evolve. We kept the name, but we started to look and already had started to look at the new issues, particularly plastic pollution and climate change. Um, and in, in some part, the protected sort of areas um, debate. Um, and so I sort of came in to revive the the, the organization, um, which I hope that we've sort of done and build new campaigns, um, particularly around interventions on plastics. We worked on the plastic bag charge um, that is proven to be so successful we built our community up as well as part of that so in 2008 we worked with maybe a thousand volunteers a year and this year we'll have a hundred thousand people working with us at beaches around the country and for me that's the anchor of the organization and anchor of all of the, the the campaigns we do and that's the basis of the theory of change it's bring people's voices together and then direct them at the legislation and the change we want to see um, and that starts at the beachfront that's where the sewage campaign started that's where we've seen the tidelines of plastic pollution and that's where we see the the impacts of climate change too now so it's really tangible it's visceral it's real for people and that's authentic and i think that's why our voice is sort of loud um in the space because actually the the charity sector and all sectors have, have lost some of that in a way and i think you've got to be really really authentic and really real and really honest in this space um and actually that gets politicians and business leaders to sit up and take notice um do so do you i mean like for people who don't aren't familiar with this you so you're not just trying to raise awareness of issues with the general public you're also going to members of parliament or yeah absolutely and we've got a long track record of sort of confronting members of parliament uh, initially um, and then creating the right dialogue in the right way with them um, to call for changes um, we've got a, a group that we work through in Parliament called the Ocean Conservation All-Party Parliamentary Group and we bring together various experts and NGOs and politicians to talk about better protections for our ocean. But but it is about bringing the voice of the grassroots community together, people who surf at beaches around the country from the tip of Scotland down to Land's End, people who beach clean at uh, uh, right around the coastline people who swim sail surf people who genuinely love the ocean and that's you know that's a rich heritage in this country we're an island nation everyone's got their fond memories of weekends by the sea of family holidays of connections with water and actually i think that's a big big driving force um that uh, that we've been able to sort of use um we're small and beautiful with a big impact. That's how I like to sort of think of, of SAS. With yeah, because I think one of the most sort of striking images I've seen is of you guys with surfboards and wetsuits outside the House of Parliament, you know, which you can't really think of somewhere further away from the ocean. How do you connect these people who aren't by the sea with issues of the ocean? Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good um, question. I mean, uh, uh, the, the only part of just the challenge is that actually parliament is right by the sea because the thames is a tidal river and so we've got this incredible sort of ocean city as our capital and it's worth reminding people of that and our mission really is to create ocean activists everywhere we um <clears throat> we have um we have actions people can take from the beachfront right to the sort of center of london in hackney wherever it may be um so so it started at the beach particularly with beach cleans and, and and sort of campaigning at the beach but it's moved into other spaces we founded the plastic free communities movement which is helping people connect um um, communities to actually challenge um, and to reduce their single-use plastic footprint so people can be an ocean activist everywhere every day whether you're refusing your straw in your drink or saying no to the plastic bag or refilling your water bottle you are an ocean activist you are effectively stopping the flow of plastic into the ocean i think there's something um really it's really interesting a lot with a lot of the um activism around plastic or co communication around it which is that a lot of it is about explaining how plastic gets into the ocean, how it could get into like a whale or a sea turtle or the deep sea. And there's a really kind of interesting side to that, which is it's kind of beautiful because it also shows you how you are, wherever you are, also connected to these amazing animals or remote ecosystems. And 
but it's kind of counterintuitive. How do you do that with your images or how do you do that with your, like what tools do you use to make that maybe not very intuitive connection? Well, I think that the, the demos and bringing people together have always been a big, big part of Surface Against Sewage. So being very visible in our calls and, and creating those stunts. Um, started with the inflatable turd, it's morphed through um, giant cotton bud sticks and, and single-use plastic items. And it's turned into things like um, the creature that we took to Parliament last year, the giant whale that um, was uh, the sort of subject of the film that we released um, last year as part of our Generation C campaign, a really visible representation of the story that we see around the world of whales and dolphins and seals and seabirds washing up dead and entangled in plastic, um, choking uh, and suffocated because of plastic. And that's um, a, a really sort of emotional story for people to be part of. And so taking a massive sea creature to Parliament um, and dumping it, as it were, outside the corridors of power and using that to start a conversation is a good example of, of how we do that. But we've had to evolve. You know, bear in mind that when we started the organization in 1990, um, there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, there was no TikTok. I think that's a thing now, I hear. Apparently it is. Um, yeah, TikTok, and, uh, and so these things didn't exist. And, and actually, the, the only way we, the organization really communicated was by its photocopied members magazine that was just a black and white photocopy. It was generally a list of events it was doing. And then also by the media. And the media wanted to see these types of stunts. But now we have to be much more creative, uh, creating sort of arresting imagery, both from sort of the real impacts we're seeing on the coastline. So the debris washed up after storms, the scale of um, the impacts on whales and dolphins, those types of things we see. And then also really novel ways of approaching um, the plastic pollution issue or the water quality issue. So we re released our Wasteland film last year, which depicted or characterized the the, um, the plastic pollution crisis as a, an emerging emerging superpower threatening the whole world with this arsenal of toxic material, which is which is plastic, um, which was the sort of pivotal point in in that sort of campaign. So you've kind of moved from stunt to story. Um, yeah, I think stunt and story, stunt and, uh, and it's it, you know there's you, you, I think you mentioned at the beginning um, the sort of toolkit approach. I, I'm a I'm a firm advocate of there being the right tool for the right job. You know, sometimes I put on a wetsuit and uh, with other campaigners outside Parliament. Sometimes I put on a suit and tie and talk really nicely inside Parliament, and they're both radical campaigning. They're not. They're they're just tools, and sometimes we need to get the inflatable turd out. Maybe you still got it. Uh, we we haven't got that one. It actually burst that one. Sadly, <laughs> <laughs> we've got I a hope new you one. Recycled it. We've got go. a new one that we tried to to deploy in in Brighton at the end of last year, but it was such a ferocious storm we couldn't risk the turd blowing into the sea, which would have been a bad publicity moment for us. A very bad look for <laughs> SAS. So I'm interested in this. Uh, just returning to this mix between stunts and storytelling, and is there an expectation? So I remember being on Rainbow Warrior, not the first one, because I'm not that old, the second one. Mm -hmm. And there was a real kickoff from uh, a German journalist, actually, who a magazine journalist who felt that they weren't being provocative enough, that the, the, the Greenpeace crew weren't being provocative enough and he wouldn't have anything to write about because there's this expectation. Mm -hmm. If you're a bit of a hellraiser and you do stunts, that's what people become to expect of you. Is it like a bit of a millstone? You can never quite move away from it. Um, yes and no. I, I think there's plenty of people out there who'd want us just to do stunts and they'd see that as the sole tool in the toolkit to do what we do. And I would respectfully disagree with them. I think that stunts will always play a part in what we do, but we can do them in various ways. Um, I, I think... I'd hope we have something sort of for everyone in that respect. So we have other sort of stunts which collect data with us. For example, our brand audit at the beach to find out which brands are responsible for the most plastic pollution. That's a stunt in a way. It mobilizes and empowers people. They collect that data and then we end up presenting that back to the brands involved. And that's quite a big sort of visual um, and participatory stunt for people to, to sort of follow. But there are people out there who think that we should just be in ga gas masks with the inflatable mm. turd on the streets of suits. London. And wetsuits. Um, and actually that is not the way we can create success because when I took over in 2008, people were trying to do that still too much. And actually it was a tired formula 
Um, some of it we see coming back with the great sort of movement of, of Greta and the climate strike and all of these sorts of things. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Um, but it's not the only thing. And actually we see some people now sort of pushing back at some of those tactics too. So I think it's about things being sort of fit for purpose. And I think people mustn't confuse sort of radical activism with always looking like that. You can be a radical activist in very, very smart attire too. And it, de it really depends on what you're saying and what your beliefs are and what your principles are. What do you think of storytelling around ocean issues? Because that's where your sort of expertise is. And what do you think of the media and the way the media landscape is at the moment? Um, well, we, you know, we we've seen some incredible storytelling around ocean issues um, recently, and everyone sort of refers back to the pivotal moment of the 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 blue planet and the focus on plastic with that. Um, and we've seen some great broadcasting around ocean issues. Um, my sense is, is we need to take, you know, people through with all of that, through the journey of the, the sort of activism and the truth, um, that, that is connected to the ocean environment, but also give them hope with it. So we need to, to be able to tell the stories of, of, um, terrible scenes of plastic and dying whales and those sorts of things on our beach. And we need to signpost them in the right, in, in the right direction to empower them um, in, in the solutions. I don't think we're currently in the space where we're talking enough about the solutions. I think we, we haven't told um, the stories of, of ocean recovery in the right ways. We're just, we're just at the tip of that sort of iceberg where we're actually, if we put the right protections in place for our ocean and for species, we can see um, the ocean and thriving again we can see f um, different types of species blue whales um, humpback whales recovering we can see whole ecosystems recovering and biomass increasing and this is a sort of story that i believe the public want to hear because there's a lot of doom and gloom out there and you've got to tell them how it is but you also have to give them the the, the roadmap to, to recovery we need to work out how much of the ocean and the planet do we really need to protect for us to be able to carry on thriving as a species that's the question what evidence do you have that the public is interested in positive stories and moved by positive stories well we haven't done any formal um sort of analysis ourselves although my sort of anecdotal and informal evidence is the response i see to those sort of positive recovery stories through our social media channels through our sort of storytelling and actually people love that they want to hear that and they want to feel inspired about what the future can look like and it's up to us as campaigners to try and design that future with them to to suggest the legislation and the changes that need to be made to deliver a thriving ocean and thriving people around it with doom what do you think the problem with doom is what do you think that Ha effect that has on people if your message is just doom paradoxically it will make them think it's not worth it they may as well just consume more and do more because it's too late already and i actually don't think it's too late i think um we can there are there's plenty of solutions all of the solutions are out there whether it's planting trees keeping coal and oil in the ground whether it's changing how you know what we eat and how we eat um, all of those things are solutions and so we need to start really banging the drum for those and actually putting putting our investments into those those areas and you mentioned we were talking earlier about it was you did this beautiful reframing of the best carbon capture and storage tool we have yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we do have it and no one's sort of talking about it. The best carbon capture storage is the fossil fuel reserves in the ground that exist at the moment. Let's keep them in the ground. Let's not try and invent another carbon capture and storage. Let's keep those in the ground and move into renewables in a much faster pace. That's what we need to do. Um, and that's actually proving to be the cheapest form of electricity now. So let's do that. It's really interesting because like, I think of carbon capture storage as being something that's after the kind of horse is bolted. How can you sort of entice it back into the barn? Yeah. And just in that sort of story tool there, you've kind of flipped it even just in the way I think about those reserves. Well, I, I'm glad I actually only road tested that for the first time today. So I'm, I'm glad it, it's I a hit with Tom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, big time. Thanks yeah, I'll be feedback. stealing that. I'll be stealing that a lot. Steal away. So ideas are to be shared. They are. And here we've got lots of budding filmmakers, storytellers, photographers. They've got the whole the whole kind of shebang here in Falmouth. How do you, how are they going to get to work with you? Because they all get very, very excited when you come and speak to them and they all sort of dream of working with SAS. What sort of commissioning process is there? How do people get to become a storyteller for your organisation? Well, you know what? I think anyone can be a storyteller with us. And I, I really pride 
um, SAS on being a, a, an accessible organization. People can join us at the beach. People can be part of a plastic-free community. People can do all sorts of things with us. They can come and campaign with us. And actually, in terms of people creating content, they can, they can, they can do that around the issues that we work on. And they can, they can email it directly to me. They can pick up the phone directly to me. I'm not hard to reach. And I think that's really, really important. Um, none of my team. Um, you know, none of, no one is in a sort of an ivory tower and hidden away. And so um, we're there and we'll always have a conversation. And actually, I look at, you know, the brilliant students that are coming through Falmouth um, and the sort of emails that I get from people from here and from further afield. Um, and I always look at it through the prism of, of my relationship with my son Darwin who's 12 today and I think that I always try and respond to the students who come to me with a question I try and help them if I can't bring them into the office or give them an opportunity I try and signpost them in the right direction because I always hope that people will do the same for my son and they'll they'll give him a helping hand and just give him that sort of little nudge in the right direction because you never know you know sometimes just a tiny sort of pearl of wisdom or tiny experience can set people off in a direction that's really really powerful so never underestimate that and I try and sort of think of that in my own sort of sharing of knowledge because it's easy to sort of assume that sort of everyone just knows it and it's easy but actually the journeys that that we've all had the good fortune to be on um, you know have given us things that we can share and empower people with one sec come on this is our producer <laughs> Natalie no nice try <laughs> nice try Natalie <laughs> Lisa you need to ask it. no because Natalie always <laughs> asks the questions off camera off mic and then everyone goes gosh that's a great question yeah sorry natalie uh, okay is there a danger if you show positive stories about water and the oceans that a lot of people will think oh okay it's fixed mm -hmm. i don't need to do anything yeah. mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely a danger of doing that but it's about um it, it, it would be about compartmentalizing those away from the actual ongoing issues. I think it's about doing all of these things. We need to talk about the radical sort of truth of, of what we're seeing in the ocean and in the wider world, our impact on planet ocean. And then we also need to show where recovery can happen. We, we, we shouldn't be saying recovery has happened. All of the metrics are going in the wrong direction at the moment, biodiversity, global heating. So there's lots of challenges, but there are stories and emerging examples of, of best practice that can give us hope for for replicating that and doing more of that so those stories should go with with the the sort of stats of what what how much more we need to do for the ocean to truly recover and for our environment to give us what we sort of truly need to thrive on on this planet so it's not fixed it's not fucked it's fixable absolutely but I'd, whilst we're here it's always fixable there always has to be hope we can always change and that's the message because you know I, I think hope is a massive part of our species on this planet we have to have hope and we have to keep that going and hope exists until the very last breath oh that's so profound i got goosebumps i did but i don't feel well anyway but uh, can one of you also ask um i I don't know as much about oceans and the waters as you do. Um, but can you just ask about, I often think that people don't think about water as in if you flush your loo, they're like, yeah, go somewhere magical. They don't assume that it returns to an ocean or what you throw down the sink returns anywhere. It's just gone because it's not It's literally anymore. flushed. Yeah. I think that's better coming from Natalie. Yeah. Natalie's magic loo. Na Natalie's trying to escape from being in the podcast, but it's not going to happen. Great question, Natalie. Yeah, great question. Good question, Natalie. Thanks for that. Um, I, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a perennial sort of campaigns we see that are often sort of funded and supported by the sort of water companies to, to get people to think about what they flush down the loo, whether it's sort of sanitary items or, or anything else, fat sores and greases are the sort of the two big campaigns I see every year and have done for for the the 12 years that I've been at, at SAS um, and before that um, so I, I, I think there is a public sort of awareness sort of issue that keeps going um, to, to, to to show people um, their impacts but this is just a, this is just an example of, of people's disconnect with their impacts it's the same as their, their disconnects with their impacts of, of the food they're eating the clothes they're wearing the 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 cars they're driving and actually uh, uh, out of sight is out of mind for for people but of course the water system is one cycle what people put down the the loo or down the sink ends up uh, eventually going back to the sea of course it often goes through treatment works um, we've had good successes in that over the last 30 years and we've seen much more proper treatment of our 
water in that time resulting in much better bathing water quality around the coastline but at the same time we've seen the proliferation of plastic so if you go down the sewers in london or manchester what you'll see stuck to all of the walls are microplastics just in their, their trillions and trillions and so actually the uh for us as an organization the convergence between our original issue and the issue of plastics and the issue of climate are all too sort of all too often demonstrated down there in the the bowels of sewer systems rather than Falmouth University. It's all back to the turd. It's all back to the turd, yeah. When when you said it was a perennial problem, I thought you meant a perennial problem. I Oh no, there's a fine for that. That, sorry, that too. Hugo. That right, too at yeah. times. Sorry, it was a sewage question. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> sorry. Hugo. I liked it. I almost asked when we were doing the panel session, I wanted to um to sort of put in there, I thought it might go down badly was who knew that the the Hulk was one of the greenest people on on the planet <laughs> <laughs> go, go down badly yeah. i don't get that oh Sorry. when the when my the film i made uh the guy who plays the incredible hulk tweeted it and he's incredible hulk's really big and, and green yeah no i know that okay Why you just had a, a look of total because green you know like green fingered you know Green issues. Oh, I green. see. Sorry, I yeah, that's easy. No, 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 sorry. We've moved on. We've moved on. We're sort of talking dog. about t- talking about just bad, bad, bad <laughs> sort of bad jokes. Yeah, we're bad about jokes. Which are we, we share? Tool. Do we share? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I do know who the Incredible Hulk is. <laughs> you just gave me a look <laughs> like, of like blank. What the fuck? Anyway, so that was my bad. I like that. Um, Natalie, have you got any more questions? Uh, in terms of storytelling, is this a case where actually in the past decade, social media has as a byproduct of people's ego? I'm not going to put That's this very well. Question. It is. Well, because people are, you know, taking photos of themselves in pretty places. So there has yeah. been much more awareness of the coastline generally. And then people zooming in on, oh, actually, this doesn't look so yeah. good. So you think by going to the seaside and taking pictures of themselves there, for sharing on social media, people notice that it's in a bad state and that makes them motivated because they're sort of associated by picturing themselves next to it. Great question, Natalie. Great question. I'm not totally convinced it's been the sort of the, the catalyst in, in in sort of the overall sort of narrative around plastics. I think we're probably talking particularly around, of course, plastics there because that's the visible thing. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of dare I say, sort of plastic sort of personalities that have come up through this. They've, they've seen the issue and then they've used their sort of feeds and their travels to, to talk about Are you that. Are you talking about me? No, not about you. I'm a plastic personality. No, you're not, no, you're not a plastic personality. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that but, was uh, a subtle but diss. No, it wasn't a diss at all on Lucy, who, who's been working on this f- for, for, for as long as began. I've known, known Lucy. So, um, so an expert in the field. But I, I think Social media, you know, for all it's good and bad, it's exposed the issue to a lot more people and we definitely use it as a good tool. But it's also we're all in an echo chamber with it. And I'm not sure we're not always just communicating with the same audience and getting pats on the back from the same audience. So I, I love I love just reaching out into other spaces and, you know, I you know take influences from all sorts of sort of places to, to try and keep well, the campaign true and fresh. But that's a very important thing, actually, because there was a sort of, you know, I think it's fair to say that a while ago, Surface Against Sewage, that whole sort of culture. It was very enviro bro, surf bro. Yeah. Do you feel you've managed to widen the appeal now and you are talking to a different audience? A- absolutely. Yeah, I think we're much, much more inclusive now and we get regular feedback about being more inclusive and just seeing the diversity of communities we now empower through plastic-free communities, for example, from Hackney to the Highlands, people taking action with us, um, people bringing together. I mean, I- I'm continually inspired by that. We launched that program in 2017 and I had a- an aspiration that it might reach 125 communities by 2020. Actually, we've got 700 communities around the country representing millions of people. And, and I see stuff online um, um, through Instagram of, of communities I've never been to, people I've never met, all under this sort of banner, taking action, bringing sort of, you know, a whole different generations together to take action on plastic. And that's really inspirational. And they're not surfers, and they're not people who are down here in, in, in the badlands of St. Agnes and Port Town. They are people who are just passionate about the ocean and have seen SAS as a vehicle to be able to do more together with um, sort of shared interests. So people listening, how can they help you? People can always get involved with Surface Against Sewage uh, through our website, sas.org.uk. They can join a beach clean. We've got hundreds and hundreds that happen around the country. Um, They can, of course, make a donation. 
Um, they can join a plastic-free community or start one. They can get our Safer Seas service app to learn about water quality and keep themselves safe. They can come to Parliament with us. They can demonstrate in Westminster with us. But more importantly, I would say, find the organisation that is that reflects you sort of truly. There's loads of brilliant organisations out there in all sorts of places doing very small community things, doing very big national or international things. Find the thing that makes you sort of tick on the issue that makes you tick. That could be SAS, it could be anyone. Um, and and give them your voice and give them your support. I mean, it'd be great if it was SAS, and I'm saying this disclaimer as a trustee. Yeah, but, but make it SAS. <laughs> as long as it's SAS. <laughs> yeah, it's as fine. long as it's SAS, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. Um, so is that inflatable turd plastic? The inflatable turd was, was plastic, but it wasn't single-use plastic. The inflatable turd was used multiple times in multiple locations and had a long and happy life as a turd. It's now deceased, I think, as a prop. Um, the new one is not plastic. It is made out of fabric and it is filled with um, plastic bottles that have been collected from beaches. So there, it's it's so woke. Your yeah. turd is so woke. It's so woke, so wow. woke. But uh, yeah, we we decided <laughs> to move away from the, the plastic. <laughs> turd. Renaming this podcast. <laughs> How, How woke, woke is, is your, your turd? turd. <laughs> it's uh, amazing. And on that note, thank you so much, Hugo. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Hugo. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly, out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. So that was Hugo. And, uh, and with him, we set up what would be a running theme a, a, a stream running through this episode of toilets of uh, lab lavatorial um vibes and so without any further ado the next man who entered our recording studio underneath falmouth university was tim cockrell oh i should add that lucy uh, i i've known tim for a long time but lucy had never met him before i feel like i know him really well now Hi Tim. <laughs> Hi. We already know each other. We do. Um, Tim well, we Cockerell. don't. Sorry. Thank you. Me and Tim know each other. This is Tim Cockerell, who I last saw in a jungle in Borneo, um, doing a poo. It's true. Doing unspeakable things into a bucket with a thermal imaging camera. It really is too much information. <laughs> it was amazing. I filmed Tim with a thermal imaging camera doing a poo to show how we could attract dung beetles. Was I'm it dung beetles? It was, yeah. Really um, giving you a look at the moment because... I didn't think we were going to start the conversation that way, but that's fine. I, so don't, I don't start most conversations that way, no. So this was to order, but this was for TV. It wasn't to order, because that would be exploitative. It was more like a thing that came up as a suggestion. We needed to attract beetles. Tim, maybe you should explain. Well, yeah, that is the way. So as a, as, as a, a scientist working with insects, that's one of the, the ways that we attract things in. So we bait a trap. And in a rainforest, dung beetles are looking for primate <laughs> dung. And no, this is real. This is real. This is science. This is actual science. And the best source, the easiest source of primate dung, is the dung of a primate. And I happen to be a primate. <laughs> so, so I don't want to continue. <laughs> it's too late. It's oh. happening. And I've it's never true. seen the footage. The footage is sitting I, on some shelf in some archive somewhere. The only people who saw the footage. This is a thermal imaging camera, so you can just see heat. So oh me and the God. editor. So, so we set the camera up and we all went and looked the other way and then Tim came out and baited and <laughs> and then he said he was finished and then we could all look again and then back in the edit we, we looked at the thermal images <laughs> which I've got to admit was quite disturbing and we thought it should not go on television. I think it would be discovered by TV archaeologists in a thousand years' time. We destroyed it. We deleted it. We didn't <laughs> think it was okay. I just want to tell the listener how unconcerned Tim is by this whole conversation. <laughs> I think I was much more scarred than Tim. But what's really awful is they didn't even use it. Uh, no, I know. All that effort. But there's an idea there. We need to pitch that to some commissioner. <laughs> okay, we need to move <laughs> well, on. Well, not then, maybe. All right. <laughs> but Tim is... What you should know from this is that Tim is an entomologist... And he is very interested in communicating biology. What's your job? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the thing that has... I've worn lots of different hats over the year, but the thing really that has collected them all together is communicating and documenting biodiversity. Is it true to say you'll do anything to communicate biodiversity? <laughs> What uh, would you hold me to it? No, I don't well, think. I, I don't think it's true. Heard about you shitting in a bucket for thermal imaging. It wasn't in a bucket. It you said just, it was a bucket. Was it a bucket? I think it was a bucket. Yeah. It was. Oh, maybe it was, I've blanked it out. Anyway, let's move. Let's move on. Yeah, I could say that's probably not my limit, but I don't know what I don't know what the next step is after that. But it's commitment. It, yeah. You're not. At, that's not a peak, Tim. It was a trough. It was definitely a trough. Okay. I put it in a bucket. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. How are we going to come back? Let's from reset. <laughs> let's reset. So we are welcoming. <laughs> Can have some kind of beep or something. Uh, okay. So um, welcome, Lucy. You do. Welcome yeah, to. You do. Okay. So we're talking about communication. This is your specialty. Yes. How did you? Just tell me a little bit how you started communicating science. So I suppose it came from my own fascination with the natural world. So I started off in a garden, a suburban garden in the middle of Hull in East Yorkshire, fascinated by the insects in my back garden, just in a normal garden. I had a tiny little book, The Collins Gem Guide to Insects. And I spent my summer holidays with this little book. I, was a, I didn't get out much as a kid. I needed a bit more attention. But um, I spent my summers looking up insects in, in a, a tiny little book and spending all my time doing that. And so the next step after that was to tell people about all of this amazing stuff that I found. And the key thing about it was that not many people seemed to know about it, but I discovered these little hidden gems in the back garden. And so that's when I wanted to start telling people about this amazing stuff. And it can seem really niche this, um, but it's really important. Like insects, you know, there's insectageddon at the moment. Could you ex explain that? Yeah, certainly. Well, first of all, before you even get to insectageddon, you need to talk about how important insects actually are. And when so, I, I give lectures to students, students of uh, zoology or natural history or photography, and I ask them to name an animal. And ninety percent of the time, people name animals that on those branches of the evolutionary tree are very, very close to humans. So people name vertebrates, mammals, and birds, and things like that. But actually, if you add up all of the mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, if you add up all of the plants, there are more species of insects than there are of everything else combined. So the normal way to be an animal on planet Earth is to be an insect. What's your favourite? My favourite insect, it changes occasionally. My, one of my favourite insects, it is a big spectacular one, it's called Idolomantis diabolicum and it lives in Central Africa and it's a praying mantis and it's a huge praying mantis and it's it's my favourite because it's just weird. It just looks like an alien. It's so spectacular. It's got huge arms with big eye spots that it waves in the in the air to deter predators, and it's just an amazing thing. I wish I wish cool. the people listening could see Tim's. He's acting it out, yeah, and, he and is. It, it, we're there. I'm there. If another entomologist could see me, they would say he's doing an Idolomantis diabolicum there, just from my arm movements. It's very distinctive. <laughs> but a lot of people hate bugs and insects. But why are they important? Well. It comes down to, you could ask that question about any aspect of biodiversity, any aspect of the natural world, couldn't you? Why is it important? And I suppose the answers fall, fall into two categories. And one category are those things that we can gain from biodiversity. So what does biodiversity do for us? And it's those services, we call them ecosystem services, and things like the things that insects do, our pollination is one of the big ones. So there are so many crops that we wouldn't have without insects pollinating chocolate for example insects pollinate the the cacao pod um in in the tropics and so without insects we wouldn't have chocolate but there are so many things we can make lists of the things that insects provide for us decomposition loads and loads of these things that that biodiversity provides for us there's another thing though which i think is equally if not more important and that is those intrinsic values of biodiversity so biodiversity has value just because it is and when we go out into the field and we're looking at the pinnacle of four billion years of evolution that's surrounding us right now and so i think biodiversity is important not just because of what it can do for us in terms of services and in terms of our own mental health but just because it exists because it's there do you do you think that people have done justice to bugs in in nature storytelling in in 
mass market nature storytelling, not necessarily. People are working hard to do it, but it is very difficult to get get the message across. Basically, as humans, we are it's a bit of a spectrum of the things that we're interested in or the, the kind of living things that we engage with. So we engage with living things and then living things that look a bit like humans, then living things that look a lot more like humans and then humans. And insects are quite a way down the opposite end of that spectrum to humans. So quite often it is a hard sell to get people engaged with uh, with insects or w- with the, the, the most biodiverse groups of animals on the planet. But a huge proportion of our society is fascinated by insects. And uh, am I, if I'm allowed to name drop, well, David Attenborough once said to me, I've never met a child who's not fascinated by insects. So yeah. I think we do have a, a natural um, a natural affinity to creepy crawlies, as they sometimes get called, to insects and to smaller animals. But why do we lose that? I don't know, really. I, I, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's, it's certainly not necessarily a cool thing to be, to be interested in insects. And certainly, uh, I think maybe we just get a bit distracted by all those basically things with big eyes, with fur, uh, the, the stereotypically cute animals, with, uh, with cats and dogs. Um, and yeah, insects becomes more of a niche interest. I have a language question. So the Guardian in its star guide changed from using biodiversity to wildlife. Mm. As a communicator yourself, what do you think of that change, that shift? I think it's a natural thing to do. I think as a communicator, we're essentially, sometimes we're translating really complex science and translating is the key word there because we've got to put these things these ideas about nature about biodiversity about science or conservation we've got to put them into a language that people understand and if people some people might be a bit pedantic about the specific words that we use um, about the specific language that we use but if it puts it into a a set of uh, terms that people understand and that people engage with well then it's absolutely the right thing to do i was talking this is my name drop not quite as good as yours, but I was talking to Jon Snow of Channel 4 News recently. Not Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. Did he know nothing? Um, same one, <laughs> same one, same person. He, he was saying that he felt very strongly about the collapse of the insect population. So he'd done a film for Channel 4 News, which I then saw actually. And they'd done that, that windscreen test so looking at you know how many insects used to hit your windscreen when you drove along a road in kent mm. and now it's like there's hardly any so that's they described it better than that and they had better science it's like the splatometer or something mm. isn't yes it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then people had said oh well they used to do it on a different on a vintage car which had an upright windscreen so they emulated the test exactly with an old car blah 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 still the same results still terrible crisis anyway he seemed just really pleased that they'd been able to cover the story and I got the sense that he'd been trying for ages to cover that story until they alighted on this like format do you think that story has been told well or do you think it should have been told better and more urgently? No, and I think it's. I was really pleased, well, saddened and pleased at the same time, saddened to, to see it hit the headlines recently. It really did hit the headlines. And actually, uh, Tom, you mentioned the, the term insectageddon, and I just think that the, that term that somebody, some very clever person came up with, I think that just allowed people to kind of, in a single word, wrap their head around this concept that, yeah, insects are massively in decline. Insects are about to tip over the edge. But it should be insecticide but that's obviously something <laughs> that's else. That's taken, yeah. Well, that would be killing insects. Which well, is what we're doing, though. That is are. what we're doing, yeah. Like we're ecocide. doing it. Oh, I guess we need a term for, like, killing all the insects, though. Mass insecticide. Pan insecticide. Pan yeah. insecticide. I think an insect apocalypse is better. Mm. I don't know. I think, I don't think we've got the right it's not word. quite there. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, though. But it, it's getting us there. So do you, like, so you're basically, you're trying to communicate about, a really, really important and grave thing that's happening on an enormous scale to people who don't like those organisms or aren't that interested necessarily and aren't familiar with them. So that's like one of the hardest and most important science communication jobs. What are your techniques? Well, actually, I mean, to some extent, I am communicating that idea about the declines of insects, but in a way I see a lot of what I do to be the stage that comes before that because actually before we tell people about the declines in insects we've got to make people fall in love mm. with with insects as a huge part of the natural world and so i think 
it's something that we tend to forget about or there's a danger that we can forget about this because and because rightly so we are uh, really interested in in the activism side and communicating the the kind of conservation message and the solutions but i think there is a slight danger that we forget just to talk about how amazing and fascinating these things are in the first place and i don't think people will engage with things and i don't think people will have that impetus to conserve things unless they really care about it, unless they really fall in love with these things in the first place. So I see a lot of what I do being that first stage before we even get to that. Have we left it rather late, though, to fall in love with insect populations as they're wiped out? It's like a bit 11th hour. Yeah, well, to some extent. I mean, insects, more than anything, are the canaries in the coal mine. So because they're such an important part of any ecosystem, that when the insects are in trouble, that is the point where we really need to start worrying about things. So they're just these indicators as to what is going on in an ecosystem. Um, and so, but we are, the, the, the good thing about insects is that their populations can be quite robust. And we've seen loads of examples all over the world when people target a particular species of insect and they put in conservation measures, they do bounce back. So it's not the end of the world, but yeah, it's it's, um, it, it is late in the day. Things are serious. Can you describe just quickly what is the problem? What is insect insectageddon? So insectageddon, this term that popped up recently, it describes the idea that the insect populations and the diversity of insects over the past few decades has fallen off the edge of a cliff. And so the, the splatometer on the car, so the, the, this, uh, the thing that really brings it to life is imagining 20 or 30 years ago, you'd be driving down a road in the summer and your windscreen, your number plate will be absolutely covered with splattered insects. And now if you drive around in the summer, if you go to a biodiverse part of the world, um, well, it still happens. But in the UK particularly, it, you, you barely get any insects. Weirdly, it's one of those issues like climate change, which seems to have invited a group of sceptics, people who are determined to debunk that research. Why do you think that is? Well, but really, there were like there were people who are skeptical about whether insects are going extinct. Yeah, oh, fuck off! It's so I know. stupid. But we can't say that to them. We must listen to their views and challenge them okay. yeah. in an appropriate way. <laughs> Fine, Tim. What would well, you say, say to that first? We say it to each other. What would you say to those people, Tim? Well, I mean, the, it's been scientifically documented now. These, uh, the, uh, one of the good things about insects is that, particularly in the UK, we've got a couple of hundred years of enthusiastic amateur entomologists. And that it kind of gives the idea of this, you know, a nerdy, beardy bloke sitting looking down at a microscope. Well, one of those nerdy, beardy blokes was Charles Darwin. He was an amateur entomologist um, in the 1850s. Um, and so we've got this, this really long set of baseline data going back decades of insect numbers in the UK and in Europe. Um, and the data you just can't argue with science basically even in national parks in Europe well there is data that suggests that the insect numbers and biodiversity are falling off this precipice you can prove anything with facts (laughs) (laughs) even in the post-fact era that's a shame so how do you make people fall in love with insects you're clearly already in love with insects Mm. what are your story tools for doing that that's an interesting question. You said one to me yesterday that was really interesting, which was you, you just make insects bigger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think one of the main things, one of the main reasons why we find it hard to engage with, with, with insects, with smaller animals, is because they're small. So last week in Cornwall, a fin whale washed up on one of the beaches, really sad thing, and and it was it was it was awesome to be in in the presence of this really awe-inspiring creature. But as I drove down, there was a dead badger on the road. And of course, it's it's just as sad. And uh, people were going to see the whale because it, it it was a spectacle. But there were fifty or so people on the beach, all talking about how sad it was that this that this intelligent animal has died. But but we just walked past a really intelligent animal that was dead on the road. And I think it's because of the scale. There is something about the scale of animals that if they're a similar scale to ourselves or bigger, well, then we're kind of uh, we're in awe of these things. Um, but actually, by making an insect the size of any other animal once you put an insect on a screen through photography or through films well then it's the same size as a bengal tiger same size as an orca the same size as a hamster and so that's it's one really uh, a, a really useful and powerful tool to to bring insects to life like in honey i shrank the kids exactly yeah yeah and so if um, and when so the ant gets blown up do you remember that i remember the ant when the ant dies it's like it's so sad does it dies it dies doesn't it i've never seen that film so now you've spoiled the end for me <laughs> And so probably for Tim and for Natalie. I have a feeling that Tim's seen and it. All I have the seen it yeah, years ago. It is really nice, the ant. So lots of people don't like them. They they think they're scary. They can sting them. They're gross. You know. So it's not the size thing. But how do you, how do you bring those people, 
to fall in love with bugs. Yeah, insects. well, sorry, should I say insects? Is that a better term? Insects, yeah, but it's just insects. Uh, I mean, the, the term creepy crawlies is horrendous, isn't it? But it, it kind of it, it sums things up in a way. That's how you a lot of people would see that's them. That's in love the with problem. creepy crawlies. No, exactly. Creepy crawlies and it's, a, it's a horrible pejorative. term to use. It's, it's for because oh, oh God, do we call them arthropods? That's the that's what we call them technically, but it's not that engaging. Is Mini it? beasts. Mini beasts. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's a bit primary school, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's dismissive of them based on size, which is. So how do you make people fall in love with these small animals that many that they've already decided are dangerous or gross? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that it's it is a particular Western perspective to say that people are naturally scared and fearful of insects and spiders and things like that. There's Psychologists have done research on whether or not we are actually innately scared of spiders, and we're not actually. So as, as babies and children, they're not innately scared of spiders. So it's, it's cultural. It's a cultural thing. It's a learned behaviour. There there's some evidence to suggest that we have evolved the ability to learn a fear of these kind of animals, but we're not. We're certainly not born or we don't grow up with a fear of these things. I've like seen it snakes. Like there is an innate fear of snakes in humans. The movement of snakes, even babies are scared of an adult because that, that's the thing that's programmed into us and rats but again i'm sure that is a cultural thing no because they carry disease but it's a cultural th- uh, i don't know well rats are a particular species or rodents in i've been well, in, in a specific context like maybe maybe not in other countries in non-cities rats don't necessarily carry as much disease as, as other animals yeah exactly they're just another another rodent species i've been in lots of parts of the world where a, a rat is another thing to eat another 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 animal that you can shoot with a bow and arrow and stick on the fire to eat but so your background is quite unusual for a science communicator and entomologist do you want to could you talk about some of the other hats you've worn literally some of the Sorry. other buckets. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of say that by day I'm a, a zoologist or communicator and then by night I'm a fire eater. So I've spent... The other thing that I've done for years and years is worked in entertainment, in circus and street performing and a, a sideshow and things like that. Yeah, so I kind of... I do get up on stage and I do eat fire and escape from straitjackets and things like that. What What does that give you? What does it give me? That is something that it's almost an addiction maybe i just didn't get enough attention as a child i don't know but it's something that once you've done that on stage and once you've had that round of applause from an audience it's hard not to do that anymore i find mm. yeah but i'm fascinated by the psychology of it and the craft and the history of it so there there are lots of different aspects that all meet somewhere in the middle but you've brought that kind of showmanship into your uh entomology yeah. Yes, I've done things on CBBC where we uh, uh, presented a, a kind of cabinet of curiosities where we bring on a different invertebrate uh, each week and talk about it in the style of an old Victorian showman. Um, I'm also fascinated by a thing called the Flea Circus, which is this old sideshow that's been it actually existed for about 400 years. 400 years? About 400 years, yeah. So people uh, had this idea of attaching a harness around the neck of a flea um, and then people would, would pay uh, the sixpence to come and see this as an exhibition. So nowadays the Flea Circus doesn't really exist anymore. So people think of it as a magician's trick with magnets and wires making it look like Was fleas. It real? Are, uh, f- yeah, so, so nowadays it's magnets and wires and a magician's trick and a illusion of fleas and it's a a, a, but fleas could actually pull a little mini carriage they absolutely could yeah so fleas would pull chariots they'd have a chariot race um i've had fleas facing each other fighting a duel i've had fleas juggling a ball in in their legs whoa so is that a way you can make people sort of connect with them by anthropomorphizing them and bringing them to doing sort of human scale things well to some extent but this is one of the reasons why the history of this thing the flea circus is fascinating is that that was very much a victorian thing to do so in the golden age of the circus where an elephant was something that you would go and see in the circus and you'd be amazed at it performing a particular thing so and being anthropomorphized and doing things that humans would do so a, an elephant routine might end in the elephants going to bed next to the elephant keeper and being covered up with a with a blanket so an elephant being trained to do something to uh, to to ape a human basically um, and the flea circus the kind of acts that you would see would basically mimic that kind of stuff as well so you'd mm. have flea circuses performing um, tiny versions of those traditional circus acts but interestingly I've, I put a video up of um, a flea circus so I, I was trying to bring back I've, I brought back the flea circus essentially um, from extinction and I put a video of this up on YouTube and there was a, a video with a flea but the size of a hamster on a on a video screen with it using a macro lens and wow. 
the the comments there were there was a huge proportion of comments from people that were absolutely offended by the fact that I was treating an animal in this way. So this is a flea which most people would have no qualms about putting insecticide on their dog to kill the fleas. But actually, when you anthropomorphize it, when you bring it to the size a scale where you can empathize with it, well then, then empathy suddenly, kicked in. Yeah, that, exactly. Wow. And you suddenly see this as a as a living um, sentient being. So you became part of the circus cruelty to animal debate. Essentially, yeah, yeah. By reviving the flea circus. So, you, yeah. so you'd been successful in making people care about fleas, but then that bit you in the ass Completely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> no, sorry. Oh, no. sorry. Oh, I didn't catch that. Don't even pretend sorry. that no, didn't was mean that. <laughs> don't even. Can I do one that's not got an accidental joke in it? Sorry, that was weird. What, no. you want to start from scratch? Oh, come God. on, come on. Okay, uh, so where can people see your, your work? So they can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tim Cockerell. Um, they can look on my website or they can come and see various live events that I do. So, yeah, follow me on social media and I'll keep you updated. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Oh, and, and what would be if you, if you are making like if you are trying to communicate about something that's unpopular or gross or unloved, what would your tip be for people out there trying to do that? The first I think the most important thing is to make sure that your own passion for these things shines through. So there's no faking enthusiasm. I think your enthusiasm is absolutely shining through. It is. <laughs> Thank you. That sounds rude. It's been a long day. Oh, it God. has been a long day. <laughs> oh, we started off this is the on the wrong foot <laughs> <laughs> to an extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, he set the tone with the shitting in a bucket. I can't get. I can't move on from the bucket. <laughs> I find it really hard to move on. I'm, I'm sorry, Tim. That was my fault. Uh, no, you know right. what it's really pisses me off about it is that they didn't use the footage. Yeah, no, and hey, I tried to extract that. I thought, is this showreel material? It's not showreel It just is... It's, it's just shit, really, really. Hey. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie, our oh, producer. <laughs> so we've 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 had a, a big joke about poo and sewage, and but this is perhaps one of the most important problems that we face in communicating nature and climate, which is that some stories are more interesting or uh, less repulsive uh, than other ones. But sometimes the most repulsive and least interesting ones to people immediately are the ones that we really need to get them to pay attention to. Mm. Trying to get people to care about sewage, trying to get people to care about bugs that they might not like, it's not impossible. In fact, we've seen that, we, that these two people have made it, have done it extremely successfully. It's just about realising that there are other storytelling tools in the box than the ones we normally reach for. And joking apart, especially from Tim... Well, I found both of those interviews so revelatory, both those conversations, because you kind of just like hurtle through life and, you know, a lot of people make a bit of time to support a conservation organisation or watch a documentary or whatever. But it's like when you sort of understand what's gone into that and the protocols and the ethics behind it because I think in both cases we're talking about the ethics of building these these campaigning organizations or building a wildlife and nature show it's that's the thing that's really really important is a lot of that background work mm. and, and focus a, and focus right? and exactly like that when you instead of trying to save the entire ocean building coastal community campaigns around sewage and then around plastic by just sticking to that and engaging people and making them feel part of it, finding the communities that those stories are really relevant for and then um, connecting them with policymakers, uh, showing those communities that they have power and that they can uh, come together and, uh, and influence policy. Um, and that's happening in, in entomology too. Like people this summer, of course, with all the butterflies, everybody is into bugs this year. Mm. Um, everyone's talking about planting verges um, in a way uh, that people weren't really last year either. And a lot of that is down to people who are already really passionate about this, taking this moment and saying, yeah, but have you thought about these other ones? Have you thought that they're in trouble? Have you?" Um... But that's really interesting because th is that a more motivating message than trying to alert people to a big absence. 
So is building on, hey, you saw some butterflies this year and maybe you got a bird book for the first time and you started cataloging what you see in your garden. Is that a better foundation to build on than, tr- than running around trying to say to people, hey, we haven't seen the, uh, you know, the, this certain sort of beetle for a while and blah, blah, blah. Because all the research that's coming through, and there is some interesting research on on communications that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, and I've had a little preview, which shows that the negative story, the dystopian story, it just doesn't stick and it doesn't motivate people towards change. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've just got to be opportunistic. You can't wish the world was different and that people cared about different things. You've got to look at your uh, your hook. How okay they're interested in this? Maybe that can lead them to something else. Um, oh, there's a moment when everyone's focus and attention is on this. Maybe if I showed them this story, if I told it in this way, that they're suddenly more keyed into wanting to hear. Um, you can't just be angry that people don't care. You've got to think of how to reach those people, and and maybe they might care. And also this research, which I'm very excited about, and I hope we can talk oh, yes. more in future episodes, also shows that. Maybe this is, you know, like obvious, but the more down to earth you are in your examination of these subjects, then the more people can kind of relate to them and the more accessible mm-hmm. they make. And the thing I would like to say about this episode, particularly Tim, was that it was very down to earth. It was very human. And I'll just leave it there. I'm not sure we should ever go more down to earth. No, um, I agree. And... And also, next week is our last episode, isn't it? Oh, I can't believe it. Of this season. Yeah. Of this, not ever. Lucy, your face just fell. No, I'm not. No, I wasn't it sounded saying, like you were leaving. I'm out of here, guys. No, it's our last episode of this season. And hopefully, we will be back. Hopefully. <laughs> we don't know. With your support. With your encouragement. I think the signs are pretty good, but we're still not sure. But either way next week is our last episode of this season and it's a really really special one so we look forward to you joining us for that yeah and again we'll be in cornwall yes it was also in cornwall it all happened at the same time um wait that's not very exciting is it no (laughs) more of the same more of the same i can't get enough cornwall i don't know about you actually what happened what happens in the last one i think is the most exciting because finally we're out of a room we're on the move we're outdoors Uh, and we even end up in a totally different habitat. Make of that what you will. Tom goes swimming. Wait, that's such a buzzkill. (laughs) You can't just say it like that. Tom Uh, goes swimming. It was like February or something. It was, it was, it was, um, it was pretty out there. It was great. But now that's not a surprise. But tune in anyway, because the rest of it's fun too. Once again, thank you to Sony Fourth Floor and Picture Zero and our wonderful producer, uh, Natalie Jameson. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, Nat. Okay, see you next week for the last episode of season one of So Hot Right Now. Bye. Bye. Well, I need to start doing my mum's goodbye. Now that's become a thing. It was a joke before. My dad says, my dad says, when my dad answers the phone, he goes, uh, what does he do? He goes, hello, hello. He's got a very particular (laughs) hello. My dad would always just say the phone number. That was the main thing. I love it when people do that. It's my favourite thing. Mm